please welcome President of the Council of American Ambassadors, Ambassador Timothy Chorba. Good afternoon and welcome to our program inspired by Paul Richter's recently released book, Frontline Ambassador. Momentarily, I'll turn the podium over to our moderator, Ambassador Ed Gabriel, who along with Ambassador Ryan Crocker and Paul Richter, will engage in a riveting conversation and then in dialogue with our Zoom participants. By way of background, Ambassador Gabriel served as ambassador to Morocco under President Clinton. As a leader in the Arab American community, he is eminently well qualified to moderate today's program that centers on war-torn countries and our ambassadors to them. As the host of today's program, the Council of American Ambassadors is delighted that a remarkably strong contingent of career ambassadors from the American Academy of Diplomacy is jo joining us as Zoom participants today. That Ambassador Crocker is a member of both the Council of American Ambassadors and the American Academy of Diplomacy, of course, is a major factor in today's remarkable turnout of retired ambassadors, both career and non-career. Particular appreciation must be expressed to Ambassador Ron Newman for apprising AAD's membership about today's opportunity. Gratifyingly, approximately 50 ambassadors from our two organizations are aboard for today's Zoom program to help offset the fact that we'll be participating a bit anonymously on computer and iPad screens. I'll take a brief moment to mention each of the participants by name. I'll begin with our guests from the American Academy of Diplomacy, a list of course headed by Ambassador Ron Newman. As all were ambassadors in the interest of time, I'll dispense with the title. So alphabetically with us today from the Academy, uh, Gina Abercrombie Winstanley, my next door neighbor, Michelle Bond, Richard Boucher, Aurelia Brazil, Hank Cohen, Walt Cutler, Ruth Davis, Alan Eastham, Harriet Elam Thomas, Susan Elliott, Gerald Firestein, Robert Jackson, Susan Jacobs, Laura Kennedy, Pat Kennedy, Melvin Levitsky, Terence McCulley, David Miller, John Plasted, Robin Raffel, Charles Ray, Teresita Schaefer, Patrick Theros, Alan Went, Molly Williamson, and John Wolfe. And joining us, uh, joining the program today, will be Ann Patterson, who of course is featured in Paul uh, Richter's book. Our Council of American Ambassadors members with us today include George Bruno, Jim Kane, Chuck Cobb, Sue Cobb, April Foley, Tom Graham, Faye Hartog-Levin, Bruce Heyman, Philip Hughes, who is the Senior Vice President of the Council of American Ambassadors, Brenda Johnson, Robert Mandel, Kevin O'Malley, Gil Robinson, Jim Rosapepe, Todd Sedgwick, Tom Siebert, and Paul Speltz. Finally, with us today from the Council of American Ambassadors, uh, we include John Masto, who, uh, like Ryan Crocker, uh, is distinguished by a lengthy career as a uh, Foreign Service officer and multi-time ambassador. 
We also have with us six alumni of our Annenberg program, through which the council supports rising college seniors while they are summer interns at the State Department in Foggy Bottom. Today's contingent includes Tabitha Anderson, Rosa Kupari, Donna Imadi, Ankita Satpathe, Amelia Wagner, and Luke Zero. All of these overachievers, of whom the council is very proud, have gone on from their State Department internships to prestigious undertakings with international trajectories. Before Ambassador Gabriel takes the helm, let me express our collective appreciation to the Council's Executive Director, Kathleen Sheehan, herself a former Foreign Service Officer, and to our Director of Communications, Keisha King, who now is weighing graduate school acceptances by both Columbia University and Johns Hopkins SICE, for conceiving today's program and tirelessly working to bring it to fruition. And with that, I give you Ambassador Ed Gabriel. Thank, thank you, Tim. Uh, and uh, thank you, CAA team, Kathleen and Keisha, for hosting today's event, uh, which I think is, uh, will offer us a very special insight into the workings of the Career Diplomatic Corps. We often find ourselves in a discussion about the American foreign policy tradition, which combines career and non-career ambassadors in the conduct of its business. That is part of the subject of today's discussion, but what I learned from reading Paul Richter's book is another little-known category of ambassador, frontline ambassador, and that's going to be the major theme of today's conference. As uh, Tim mentioned, we have with us two very distinguished guests, uh, Ambassador Ryan Crocker, who I'm sure most of you know and have worked with in the past, and Paul Richter, uh, a well-known author, reporter, and foreign policy journalist. Now, uh, Ryan is a former U.S. ambassador with the rank of career ambassador, a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and served six times as U.S. ambassador. You heard me, six times. Uh, Lebanon, Kuwait, Syria, Pakistan, Iraq, Afghanistan, um, some of the softer places, I guess. President George W. Bush called him America's Lawrence of Arabia. So <clears throat> Ryan is part of a special group of foreign service officers who have thrived in the sandstorms and the smoke of battle and become became known among insiders as expeditionary diplomats. They were the best people for the worst places, as our guest Paul Richter describes in his book, The Ambassadors, America's Diplomats on the Front Line. Now, Paul has written about foreign policy and national security for the past three decades. As a Washington-based reporter for the Los Angeles Times, he's traveled to 60 countries and regularly appears in national and international press. Paul's book, The Ambassadors, is the story of a group of American diplomats who came to specialize in dealing with countries shaken by war and civil upheaval. It tells of four veteran ambassadors, Ryan Crocker, who's with us today, Ann Patterson, who's with us today, Robert Ford and Chris Stevens, 
who were sent repeatedly during the George W. Bush and Obama administrations to some of the toughest spots in the greater Middle East. And we are very fortunate today to have our two distinguished panelists with us. Now, we're gonna start off today's discussion with Paul exploring his book in some detail, followed by a discussion between Paul and Ryan about issues facing the US and the world. Before we go into our audience questions, we'll also have a discussion about the role of career and non-career ambassadors, which is of interest to some of the people in the audience today as we conduct foreign policy. So Paul, welcome uh, to this uh, broadcast. Thank you. So I'm gonna ask you uh, about three questions while we have the time. Uh, my first question to you is, what do you mean by frontline ambassador? And give us some examples, if you will, and a general insight into your book. Thank you. Well, most ambassadors um, are sent to countries that are stable and where US policy has been pretty much worked out. Um, <clears throat> The ambassadors that I write about uh, have been sent to countries that are in, involved in wars, revolutions, or some kind of social upheaval. Uh, the Bush administration and the Obama administration sent a stream of uh, diplomats to these kind of situations during their, uh, during their years in office, especially in the greater Middle East uh, in the decade, in the first decade and a half after 9-11. These were situations where U.S. policy was really in flux and the ambassadors had to take on an unusually large role. Um, sometimes they helped build uh, and direct their host uh, governments. They helped broker sometimes important internal political deals. And sometimes they took part in guiding U.S. military operations and the counterterrorism operations of the time, too their lives were often at risk. They were really kind of the emergency room doctors of the craft. Uh, Ambassador Crocker, of course, was sent to Afghanistan in early 2002 when the Taliban government had been ousted and the Afghans were trying to put together a new government. Uh, he was sent to Iraq in 2007 uh, amid the troop surge uh, and he tried to uh, work with General David Petraeus and others to uh, quell the sectarian war that was going on then. He was sent back to Afghanistan in 2011 after another troop surge to help look for an exit strategy for the U.S. Um, these career diplomats didn't necessarily begin their careers thinking that this is the kind of work that they were going to spend a lot of time in. Um, but they went back and took these assignments again and again because I think they, they realized that they were uh, able to do them well and they found them rewarding. They realized that this was some of the most important work that the State Department was doing anywhere at the time. Um, Ambassador Crocker realized uh, in 1983 when he was in Lebanon um, right after the U.S. Embassy was bombed, that, um, <clears throat> that he was suited for this kind of work and he found it rewarding. I wonder if Ambassador Crocker 
<clears throat> might say a few words about his realization of that. That'd be great. Um, let me um, let me uh, go to another question with you, if uh, if I may. Um, um, one of the most interesting um, statements in your book, I must say, is um, about Ambassador Crocker when you mention um, that quote: "The brushes with danger convinced Ryan he belonged in the field." You go on to say that chaos was the attraction to these frontline ambassadors, which I find a very interesting statement. Uh, can you give us some insight into what you found to be their special characteristics, which attracted them to the fire rather than running away from it, and insight who they are and where their loyalties, were their loyalties ever tested as part of their mission and how they dealt with that, please? Well, these four that I wrote about were all very different people. Um, and they started out with, I think, different expectations for where their careers would lead. Uh, Robert Ford and Chris Stevens started out as Peace Corps volunteers in Morocco. And I think that they expected that their careers would be in fairly peaceful places where they could be immersed in learning about uh, the Middle East and absorbing all the fascinating details of of Arab culture. Um, <clears throat> but they both got drawn into this kind of work. Robert Ford uh, went to Iraq um, and wasn't in favor of the Iraq invasion, but ended up signing up for five different um, <clears throat> assignments there. Um, Chris Stevens actually tried to avoid getting assigned to Iraq, but ended up in Libya and went there repeatedly, although it was dangerous, it turned out to be, um, it turned out to be fatal for him. Of course, he lost his life in the terrorist attack in 2012. Um, <clears throat> um, likewise, um, Ann Patterson, of course, volunteered for the, the job in Colombia in 2000 uh, as ambassador when, at the peak of the drug uh, wars when Colombia was going to be a really high stress and dangerous uh, posting. She was only one of three uh, foreign service officers who put in their card for that job, uh, but she took at it. She took to it, and it, it went well. I think um, <clears throat> I think they found as these assignments, as they took on more and more of these assignments, um, that they, uh, as I say, that they found it rewarding. They found it was something they could do well. And I think the adrenaline rush um, actually, um, um, they, they enjoyed it. Paul, you uh, also write in your book uh, that, quote, the nation can't retreat from the effort to stabilize weak countries. This mission, the foremost task of our diplomats, is more important than ever. Unstable lands continue to threaten not only those in the Muslim world's long arch of instability, but also in Central and South America, Sub-Sahara Africa, and other regions. You also state that when the Trump administration arrived in 2017, the Foreign Service's problems <laughs> wasn't indifference, but hostility. 
in your view, does the State Department understand the importance of not retreating and do they have the next generation of leaders that come after these personalities that you've written about? Are they properly staffed, prepared and supported by the political leadership of the administration? I think that their attitude about work in these crisis zones is, is different uh, than what the previous administrations have been. I think they're more, they're more reluctant, they're more eager to wind down these efforts in, in troubled states and turn our attention elsewhere. One example is in Central America, um, the Trump administration has put a lot of emphasis on blocking uh, immigrants from entering through our southern border, but they've also ramped down our diplomatic and aid efforts in that region to try to stabilize these states and try to keep people home in that way. Uh, our spending on the uh, so-called Northern Triangle states has declined by about 30% uh, over the last three years. Um, <clears throat> in terms of the broader emphasis of the State Department, um, <clears throat> as you know, uh, the number of Foreign Service officers has declined. Um, <clears throat> the administration has tried to cut the funding of the State Department between a quarter and a third uh, for the past uh, three years. And um, that's their, their focus, basically. Um, the president wants to make a point for his election that, that there, there will be no more endless wars. And I think he sees us getting bogged down in some of these, uh, in some of these troubled states, and he'd prefer to avoid it. Um, thank you. Paul, I know you had a question for Ryan on his assignment in Lebanon and also want to drill down on some specific subjects regarding both the current and future U.S. policy. So I'm going to turn the virtual floor over to you and Ryan for discussion. Thank you. Um, Ambassador Crocker, my first question is, I wonder if you could say a few words about the point at which you decided, uh, I think in 1983, that uh, that you were um, that you were well suited for this kind of crisis work, um, and uh, and that you could contribute doing it. Well, thanks, Paul, and uh, good morning to um, all of you. I'm out here on the West Coast, so we underline morning. Um, it, it's a great question, and I am struck with the kind of uncanny accuracy you showed in the book in this conversation. It's like you were inside my mind. Uh, <clears throat> and I, it's a scary place. I would not wish that on anyone. Uh, but that's exactly the process I, I kind of I went through. Um, I got to uh, Lebanon in the beginning of 1981, uh, Civil War, well and truly um, at full blossom. I looked forward to it. Um, I didn't have any particular sense of where I could take policy then as the political counselor, not the ambassador. And it really didn't much matter. Um, you know, someone above me would set those parameters. Um, then I would get to figure out how to do it in a, um, a pretty crunchy uh, situation. What I learned in the three solid years there, 81 to 84, uh, uh, was that 
I could do that kind of stuff. Um, that again, uh, just as you suggest, uh, I, I, I like the um, uh, notion of being on the, uh, uh, the very fine tip of the spear uh, and that it didn't, uh, didn't bother me much. I didn't spend any time saying, well, damn, you could not only get hurt, you could get killed. Uh, it was as, as though that were an abstraction and the reality was uh, just figuring out how you can move a relationship there, suggest an initiative here, and it might lead somewhere good. Um, at least it might silence the guns for, for a while. I, I don't take any particular personal credit for that. I think it's the way I'm wired. Um, that uh, things that go bang in the night or the day or day and night uh, didn't really upset me. That uh, in a sense, in the middle of a crisis, boy, the, the world slowed down, time slowed down. Uh, all of the peripheral stuff just kind of moved off screen. Didn't have to worry about it. Didn't even have to think about it. Uh, just had to think about what was in front of me. And uh, again, it, uh, it was something that needed doing. Somebody's got to do that stuff. Um, and uh, I just felt that, well, maybe that's my little niche here, that I, uh, that I <laughs> keep on doing stuff. So the way I've summed it up for others and my colleagues and former colleagues in both organizations here today will relate to it. Um, um, I, I think I had one huge quality for both uh, Republican and Democratic administrations, and that was um, my inherent expendability. You know, ooh, it's bad out there. I mean, it's really bad. So, you know, maybe we should send out Crocker, and if it gets better, that's good. And if it doesn't, well, no particular loss, and it opens up some promotion opportunities for younger officers. So what's not to like about it? Right. So your reward for uh, sitting in today is that you get to um, um, uh, be asked some really broad, imponderable questions, and we've got a few of them for you. The first one is um, about um, our nation building, our interventions. You've done more of this than anybody. What, what are your thoughts after this long period about what the U.S. can do effectively uh, with these states in crisis and what is a bridge too far. Uh, Paul, it's just the way you framed that question, and uh, it's the way I've heard it framed uh, more and more often, suggests some progress here. What, what are the limits on U.S. agency? Uh, yeah, uh, Timothy touched on that broad question. Uh, are we now reimagining our role in the world uh, these many decades now after World War II, and are we deciding we are not going to try to uh, lead the world anymore uh, is, again, asking that question, puts it at the higher strategic levels, it's important, but then you take it down to nation building and reconstruction, uh, where it has to be asked and answered, I think, with even greater urgency. Uh, what can we do in uh, situation X uh, that is going to make a difference. And is it doable? Uh, are, we, uh, are we taking on our shoulders something that just is never going to work for a whole variety of uh, reasons? Um, it's a challenge for us because we, we're America. Uh, we do stuff. We get her done. 
uh, one of our strongest attributes, I think, is in terms of our national character, uh, but potentially very complicating when you get outside the American box. Uh, well, look, maybe it can't be done. Maybe it can't be built. Even if it's built, is it what the people wanted? Um, can they run it? Can they maintain it? Are out your budgets available to support it? Uh, in the heat of the moment, when these decisions are being made, and there's sort of an oh my God, attitude, Iraq, Afghanistan. Uh, you got it stuff done now, now, now. Uh, uh, it can build us some big, big problems, if not some big, big buildings. And often the buildings became the problem. Uh, so in my own uh, mind, I've uh, kind of moved away from bricks and mortar, except in key, key periods and key exceptions. Um, to talk about what does reconstruction really mean and is it a net good? Uh, and, and from that, it uh, takes you to several other places. That, um, well, again, who wants it? Um, is, there, <clears throat> is there a local buy-in? Uh, is that buy-in um, solid based on what you know of the primary actors? Do they have the uh, sense of dispassionate public interest embedded in them. Um, do they carry enough weight? Will they carry that weight far enough into the future to guarantee that this project, once it's up and running, uh, is capable of continuing to do so with all the inputs that uh, uh, that, that requires? Um, so, you, you know, we're not... Uh, we should not back away from the world. I just heard this morning on uh, NPR an interview with Mark Green, uh, who recently stepped down after three years uh, uh, running USAID and from everything I can tell, ran it very, very well, uh, saying that, look, we have got to be internationally engaged uh, and development assistance is part of that engagement, but we have to be smart about it. Um, and uh, I guess that sums it up as about as, uh, as well as anyone could, but it's complicated. I'll just add one more thing to this. So going into Afghanistan after the fall of the Taliban, a couple of days after New Year's 2002, Andrew Natsios, then uh, the USAID administrator came out and the conversation was, um, well, what should we do? Our, our sense was we, uh, did not want to try to catapult um, Afghanistan into the 21st century. Maybe if we could aim our sights lower and settle, say, for the, uh, the second half of the 19th century, that would be real progress, um, and it might be doable. What are the underpinnings of the Afghan economy? Well, it's an agrarian society. Uh, uh, some, some stuff you buy in the market, and some other more highly priced stuff you buy in the alleys of major American cities. We would try to do the latter and not the former, or the former, not the latter. Um, so we had that conversation, but where did it take us? Well, if it's an agrarian society, fine. We know how to do agricultural uh, development. I mean, we've got the, the Borlaug Institute. Uh, we've got all kinds of capacity here. But what do you do when uh, they've got the seeds they need, they've got the fertilizers, 
they've got the, uh, uh, the chemical inputs, then what? Well, you've got to get the produce to a market. And to get produce to a market, you got to have roads. So, you know, bingo, just like that, we're involved in infrastructure because to Andrew and I at that time, January 2002, uh, it's the only thing that made sense. Did we ask all the right questions? Um, clearly not. We did get those roads built, but guess what? We didn't budget uh, uh, substantially or help the Afghans budget substantially for the maintenance of those roads. Uh, so now you got miles of crumbling asphalt out there uh, and uh, with a big, you know, triangular caution sign, uh, beware of these kinds of, of, of projects. So it's a long way of saying, on balance, I, I do believe that's important as an instrument in um, development and stability, but it's highly complicated. Uh, you've got to ask and keep asking a whole range of questions and you have to be ready to shift course uh, if conditions change. Uh, I tried to get a after action report going with the uh, Bush administration when I was in Iraq. Uh, but it was the last two years of that administration. They were out of gas. Any administration is in the last couple of years. And uh, many with the uh, council in particular have been part of that. It's, it's kind of our cycle. So it didn't happen. Um, in Afghanistan, and you know, both Iraq and Afghanistan had um, very high-powered special inspectors general. Uh, the reports that they produced, uh, I thought might be something that an administration could take hold of, translated out of inspectories, if you will, and try to paint a broad picture of what works strategically and what doesn't. Uh, and this really would be my last, last point um, uh, you know, on this, uh, on this uh, tough topic. Um, you've got to know when things change. That when something that looked like a good initiative because of the turns in the battle space may not be so good anymore. Um, in the case of Syria, for example, we developed a notion early on of um, community councils, local, uh, uh, local councils that would do, they, do everything they could to just bring a better life for their uh, village populations. Schools, uh, employment opportunity, uh, economic opportunity and so forth. And actually it, it worked. And one of the reasons it worked is because we, we didn't get the idea uh, pulling out of our own mind. Um, uh, local councils have a tradition in, in Syria. So seemed like a really good deal, but the war wasn't over. And what we found out what we were doing was building reasonably effective grassroots political structures that Islamic State could then take over. Um, now, even that is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but it's the kind of thing you've got to be aware of. So we likened it in Iraq, that old adage, um, trying to build the airplane while you're flying it. Uh, and, and maybe we want to do less of that kind of thing, less of uh, the really expensive, hard to build, hard to maintain sorts of projects in such volatile environments as we uh, faced in both Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, Syria, Tunisia, Yemen, 
the list goes on. But um, bottom line, I think it's important. I think we got to be really, really smart about it uh, because we're going to face it again. The biggest question the U.S. may be facing now in foreign relations is the question of whether we're going to step back from our leadership role that we've had since World War II. Uh, President Obama began moving us away from it a bit, and President Trump has accelerated that movement. Do you think that the U.S. can shed some of its responsibilities without risking its security and prosperity? Uh, again, I, I think it's a, it's a valid set of concerns. Americans, by poll after poll, indicating that they're kind of tired of this stuff. It's, uh, it costs a lot, not just in treasure, but in blood. Uh, do we really need to do it? Um, yeah, I kind of think we do. Um, for some of the reasons I just mentioned. Uh, because who does it if we don't? Uh, and, and we've now seen several major examples, I think, of, uh, that, that, that foreshadow that answer. Uh, one of them would be on refugees. The uh, Syria conflict, uh, as we all know, produced refugees in record numbers. Uh, the common refrain was the greatest refugee crisis since uh, the end of World War II. Um, what did we do about it in the 2015-2016 window? We didn't do much of anything about it. Uh, uh, kind of not our problem, Middle Eastern problem, African problem, European problem, uh, but not an American problem. Uh, what that um, position got us was in part uh, uh, a flow of refugees into Europe that brought European unity to its lowest point uh, since the end of World War II. Angela Merkel tried to lead by example, uh, uh, took a huge number of refugees uh, for which she was roundly criticized by uh, not only her neighbors, but uh, her own people. So I, I worry very much that as we look at um, cross-border issues of magnitude, if, um, uh, if we don't lead, it's not that the Chinese are going to take our place. The problem is the Chinese aren't going to take our place. And what I see now out there, uh, as I look at the region, uh, it's kind of a rough balance of power process. Uh, you know, you, you check an adversary here, you make an advance over there, largely transactional, uh, uh, but it's balance of power. And as students of history know, um, the main problem with balance of power is that it's really hard to balance. Uh, and the more players you've got, the harder that balance is, as we look at several contingencies in the Middle East, easy to get out of balance. Uh, you know, just remember that the European state system uh, in the first decade of half, decade and a half of the 20th century, was a balance of power system, um, and uh, that brought the war that nobody wanted. Well, fast forward and shrink down the uh, aperture, looking at Syria, 2015, 2016, we had some major uh oh moments there. The uh, the 
shoot down of an Israeli uh, F-16. First time that happened since like 1985. Um, fortunately, the pilots were not killed. The, the, the aircraft crashed in Israel. Uh, pilots bailed and were recovered uh, alive. And everybody took a deep breath because had that played differently, Syria could literally have blown up. Uh, not Syria qua Syria, Syria as a playing field for all kinds of Middle East proxies. So, you know, to, to look at US engagement as a strategic necessity, uh, I think is the lens I use. And I don't see an alternative, I, I flat don't. Everywhere we haven't led, I think globally, we, we've seen some really major problems develop uh, and we have seen our adversaries, not our enemies yet, but our adversaries, take advantage of our absence to reassert or assert their presence uh, in ways that I don't think fundamentally contribute to uh, peace, stability, or anything close to that. I'm wondering whether the pan pandemic now <clears throat> is going to shake a lot of countries economically and politically, especially in the developing world in ways that might make the U.S. think maybe we need to get involved again in stabilizing some of these places because otherwise their problems might spread. Quite literally, um, and, and they do spread as we've seen. You know, as I, as I watch this thing unfold in front of us all, I mean, this is a life experience we have never had before. Uh, you, you have to pose those kinds of questions. I, I look at what's happening in this country and you know, the um, alarm, the outrage and so forth that uh, the reporting of um, uh, virus related deaths vastly understated and so forth. Well, yeah, okay. Uh, it took us a while to really get everything slotted down so we could be sure we're capturing most, if not all of the, uh, uh, the COVID-19 cases. Out in the Middle East, they're not, uh, they're not capturing any of that. I mean, they don't have the systems, the public health systems and resources to deal with it adequately. Not only does that mean uh, a lot more people are gonna get it and a lot more people are gonna die from it. It means nobody knows what the real incidence is uh, in some of these places. And we won't know until it's far too late. Uh, so again, I, uh, you know, do I want us to have to lead the rest of the world in dealing with this, uh, this truly international crisis. I wish there was someone else. I wish the UN worked better. I wish the regional mechanisms like the European Union worked better. The fact is they don't. Uh, and this, this should be a moment, I think, where we step up and say, guys, we got this. Uh, uh, we're not gonna try and do it all ourselves. We're gonna tell you what you need to do uh, but it's going to be our highest priority for our own country and for the international community, because what happens out there doesn't stay out there. It, it comes home to Mama America, uh, and we will pay an even steeper price. Uh, that's what I would like to hear, you know, some, some evening from the podium uh, at the White House. That, um, we, we tried a lot of other ways. We let a lot of you make, uh, make your best efforts. Guess what? We still got a global crisis. So here's what we're gonna do now. And here's where you're gonna fit into this. Um, 
you know, that, that's kind of the announcement I'm waiting for. And I have plenty to occupy my voluminous free time before that announcement is made, because it will probably be a long time. Paul, uh, this is Ed Gabriel. Uh, why don't we pursue another question with Ryan? Um, it's been so interesting, so let's not cut it off too quickly. Okay. Um, one question that um, has been coming up is whether, you know, since 9-11, whether the U.S. has come to rely too much on military solutions and military leadership. What's your view on that? It's a, it's a valid point um, in a world where there are lots of valid points to be made. Um, we, we are dealing now with um, local and regional contingencies more than we are, or certainly were, in the days of the Cold War uh, that produced, uh, of course, a lot of fear and terror, uh, but it also brought a rough um, parity between the two superpowers um, uh, in which there was neither the scope or the appetite for regional actors to uh, shake all of that loose. Well, that's all been different with the fall of the Soviet Union. And you, you kind of saw the opening chapter, the opening salvo in the post-Cold War era, fire, take fire even before the Soviet Union dissolved, uh, the first Gulf War. Uh, 90, 1990, 1991. We, we could see how the dynamics had changed with the Soviet Union really no longer an actor, certainly not on the Middle East stage. Um, and uh, how did we respond to it? Well, we tried sanctions. Pretty clear sanctions weren't, weren't going to get the job done. I, incidentally, I was waiting to go out as ambassador to Lebanon and uh, uh, wound up running the um, State Department's Iraq-Kuwait task force, where I got a pretty intimate view of the things, um, the policy questions the country, the leadership was wrestling with in, um, uh, in 1991. And of course, we could have another fascinating discussion about its legacy. Well, sanctions weren't going to get it done, not in a reasonable time frame, not at all, would be more likely. And the president decided on a military response. Uh, Bush 41 administration then built the uh, most powerful post-World uh, War II coalition effort that, that we had seen up to that point. What we've since uh, seen since then is uh, a whole lot of other messy political military contingencies arise. Uh, you know, you've got some, or I would argue we should never have uh, created the problem in the first place, that would be Iraq. But Afghanistan, that was a response to 9-11. Uh, we would have been, I think, almost criminally negligent if, if we hadn't gone into Afghanistan. Um, but then what? Uh, so my point here again is uh, a lot of the problems out there with which we're going to have to wrestle for the foreseeable future are these messy political military problems. Uh, a military force is not going to solve them. Uh, we are not looking at a uh, major uh, tank battle in the Fulda Gap anytime soon, whatever Mr. Putin may dream in his dreams. Uh, we're going to be dealing with the, the Afghanistans, the Iraqs, the Libyas, uh, the Syrias. Um, and very often, the approach we take is going to have a military component. 
Now, in my experience, in a lot of places where we've had deployed military is they are the first ones to say uh, what we're doing now, you know, that is really not what uh, we learned at uh, Annapolis or West Point. Uh, you know, we break stuff and kill people. Uh, you know, we don't staff kindergartens. Uh, so the, the problem, again, as I've seen it time and time again, is not that the military is grabbing everything it can, so they've got all the power and all the control. They're pushing it away as hard as they can, hoping somebody else is going to pick it up or at least provide the management. Uh, 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 when I was in Iraq, and when the surge finally started taking hold, violence levels dropped. Um, and the money started flowing through the, um, the CERP program, uh, the Commander's Emergency Response Program. Lots of money, lots of pressure to spend it in a hurry, and commanders had no idea uh, how they should spend it, how they should monitor it, how they should make these decisions. Could we please get USAID officers down to like the battalion level uh, to provide uh, guidance on both humanitarian and uh, stabilization assistance? Well, I could not give General Odierno, not only down to the battalion level, I couldn't give it, uh, advisors to him down to the brigade level because they, we don't have any more. We have hollowed out USAID to such an extent that they are basically contract managers. They're not development pros. Um, so, uh, yeah, the military option is there. Um, it is uh, something that our presidents of both parties now have turned to. Um, uh, it might be better to turn in other directions, but boy, one piece of advice I have for uh, my former colleagues at state is uh, the military may not be the solution, but it's not the problem either. They are not asking for these missions they get these missions dumped on them. And I think what we have to do as civilian leaders is ensure we are doing everything we can uh, to take burdens off their shoulders uh, and somehow find the staff uh, to produce non-military outcomes to non-military problems. Uh, but there, I'm sad to say there is a tendency sometimes in, in my service, of which my foreign, the foreign service, which I'm extraordinarily proud, to kind of say uh, the military is overreaching and it's not our problem. Well, yeah, it is our problem. It's everybody's problem. Uh, so unless or until uh, uh, infantry officers start getting trained in international development, which I hope never comes, uh, the, the civilian agencies are, are gonna have to take on that burden and to make the case uh, that we need a lot more resources than what we've got. One good thing that's come out of this debate recently is figures in Congress now saying just that. You cannot cut. You cannot do a 33% cut. You cannot. And we know what we're saying because we control the money. But we need to be able to build on that positively as we need to be able to build on comments like um, General Jim Mattis. If you don't fully fund the State Department, I'm going to have to buy a lot more bullets. So we, we've got a lot of potential backing out there. We need to figure out how to draw on it to get some of the, the solutions and uh, uh, sensible approaches that we, that we really need. But again, the military isn't the problem. Let me ask a question about Afghanistan. Um, given what we know in 2020 about where the US mission has ended up, <clears throat> 
if you were back in 2002 and you were out there, what approach would you recommend? I mean, Rump Donald Rumsfeld, of course, was arguing light footprint, don't take on these people's problems. Is it possible there might have been something to Rumsfeld's uh, thinking then? Paul, that is a really great question, because again, I, I was out there at that beginning. And as you, you note in the book, uh, one of the first things we did was get uh, schools up and running, and particularly girls' schools. Uh, that incident you, you touched on um, when I took then-Senator Biden to visit a girls' first grade class, you, you know, you had girls that uh, were age six, and you had girls who were age 12. You had that because for those girls who turned uh, six, school age, uh, when the Taliban came in, got no education. Uh, and uh, again, you recounted, it was a, a memorable moment in my life asking a, an older girl whether she was bothered or embarrassed that she was in the same class as kids literally half her age. She just beamed at me and said, I'm, I don't care who else is here, I'm here. So. Fast forward to where we are now, looking like we are um, heading for the nearest well-lit exit. What's gonna happen to those girls and women? You know, what are we gonna say to them? Yeah, we urged you to step forward and we said, we've got your back, but that was then, this is now, things change. Oh my goodness, look at the time, I gotta be going. Goodbye and good luck. Should I have said back at the beginning of 2002, not only are we not gonna do any education, we in particular are not going to do anything about education for females because we don't know how this is playing out. We don't know how long we're gonna be here. It would be irresponsible for us to do those kinds of things uh, and then leave. Uh, I actually thought at the time that maybe finally we've got a situation where our values and our interests coincide uh, where uh, girls by the hundreds of thousands are in schools and that process itself starts to stabilize society. Um, but it's that kind of dilemma you're going to face. Um, so you want it quick and um, you want it focused. You do not want to get into um, humanitarian assistance, let alone stabilization and reconstruction. So we're not going to do any of that. And then we're gone when we need to be gone. Uh, we could have that debate, probably good to have it before the next contingency strikes, which it certainly will. Uh, but it would have sounded horrible at the time to say, no, nope, we're not going to do that. We could do it. I mean, we could, have, we could have a school set up in 72 hours, but we're not going to because it doesn't, that's not our game plan anymore. We're not going to do that kind of stuff. Uh, do we think that would benefit a stabilization effort that Afghans would look at us and say, oh, okay, I got that, I understand it. Uh, it's our responsibility, so we'll do it. Yeah, not in a million years. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, you gotta think through these things, uh, which we, we didn't have time to think them through pre-conflict in Afghanistan. And post-conflict, we were, we, were, we were building that airplane uh, uh, while drawing a lot of ground fire. We had time in Iraq to, to do a much better job of phase four planning than we did, but that was the perfect storm. The, the neoconservatives believed that no major US 
military presence was going to be needed after the takedown of Saddam Hussein. Uh, why? Because the Iraqis, once the tyrant's boot is lifted from their neck, will naturally trend toward peace, beauty, and justice. Um, that kind of didn't work out. But it was matched, of course, by what I would call neorealism, and I uh, would put uh, Secretary Rumsfeld in that category. Uh, he didn't want a phase four plan either, uh, uh, not because he thought um, democratically spirited Iraqis would take care of all of that for us. He didn't care. That is not why we were going to Iraq. We were going to Iraq to uh, eliminate a dangerous regional leader, full stop. We're not going to do phase four. So that became the perfect storm that uh, uh, we wound up in and then I had to deal with some of the aftermath of in 0708. So none of the, if, you know, my mantra here, none of this stuff is easy. It gets a lot harder if you haven't tried to think and talk it through uh, before that balloon goes up. Mm -hmm. Ed, do you think we should uh, move on to the career, non-career ambassador issue? Yeah, for sure. Let's do that uh, now. And I'm looking forward to uh, Ryan's answers in that uh, respect as well. <laughs> so with the uh, Ukraine scandal last fall, there started to be a lot more discussion about the value of career and non-career ambassadors. There was criticism of um, Trump administration ambassadors like Gordon Sondland. And there was, again, discussion about whether there ought to be limits on um, the use of non-career ambassadors. Of course, there have been a lot of non-career ambassadors, starting with Ben Franklin, including Avril Harriman, who've contributed a lot. Um, so I wonder if Ambassador Crocker, uh, Ambassador Gabriel, whether you'd talk a bit about your thoughts about what's the best way for the system to use these two different kinds of uh, ambassadors and what you think they're their contributions can be. Uh, Ed, Ed, why don't you take that from the start uh, since I've had the lead up until now and that way I can shoot at you from behind. Yeah, I figured. Um, so um, let, me, let me just talk about the inherent conflict a little bit. Um, uh, there is an inherent conflict between uh, career and non-career officials. Uh, we all know that. After all, you know, we're taking jobs away from those who worked most of their lives in this field and expect to be properly placed and rewarded for the years of service. I saw a statistic recently that uh, during my time, I think the uh, political appointee ambassadors were about 25 to 30, 30 plus percent. Um, we're up to nearly 45% now. So how can a foreign service officer really justify and be happy with an appointment with nearly half the, the ambassadors going to someone who I'm sure they feel um, uh, they trained for the job on. I, I, my experience has taught me, and I had some really good uh, people to work with and around. Uh, there, some of them are on this call. Um, and I wanna bring up the issue of added value. Um, Frank Wisner you know, once said, uh, there are good and bad career and non-career officers. And I think Ryan and I would agree on that point. So I think matching the skill with the complexities of the job is important. How the president goes about nominating political ambassadors, 
as well as how the Senate goes through their confirmation process is also something that should be looked at. And perhaps in a new administration, we could give some thought to uh, evaluating that process and coming up with more of a win-win solution. We, we have to find ways to empower the added value of, of what we each bring to the job and find a process within each embassy, I think, that can bring out the best strengths and all. In Embassy Rabat, we were able to do that. We came up with a strategic way of actually bringing out the best in everyone and learning from each other because both sides have strengths to offer. Why don't I just stop there and, and flip it over to, to Ryan and, and go from there? That was a great set of points, uh, particularly uh, on your last, uh, replicating what you did in Rabat more generally. Uh, and I can't think of a more auspicious moment or a more auspicious event than uh, to do just that than the event we are now part of. Um, uh, the Council of American Ambassadors coming together with the um, American Academy of Diplomacy uh, to, to produce um, this particular uh, event. Doesn't that suggest to you, uh, all of you in both organizations, uh, that it'd be really important right now at this time of national and international crisis to come together, the two organizations that represent the best uh, uh, in the field in terms of political appointees and career officers to come together and have exactly that kind of conversation. I mean, we've already got the structures. Uh, uh, some of you have even learned how to use Zoom um, and could uh, presumably be prevailed on to pass it on to less talented colleagues, who knows? Uh, but I, I would strongly urge that step uh, because, as you said right at the outset, uh, Ed, it's been part of our system from the beginning, part of our system before there was a beginning. Uh, it's not going to go away. And what we have seen, of course, is um, I think the Senate, Senate scrutiny uh, has gotten a lot tougher over the years. And it doesn't really matter whether um, the person nominated by the president uh, is facing a Senate that may also be in you know, that majority, the same party as the president, uh, they don't get a free ride. Uh, uh, both parties have been uh, embarrassed by uh, patently unqualified non-career nominees. Uh, uh, and the word is out again to uh, the White House, both parties, don't send someone up there who clearly is not up to the job. The Senate will take them apart. Uh, so I think overall, we, we've seen a higher standard now. And uh, uh, clearly, we have all kinds of cases that, uh, where non-career ambassadors have been a huge value added. Uh, uh, you know, in, in the NEA Bureau, uh, Morocco, traditionally a non-career posting. I can't think of a single ambassador in, you know, my career progression, granted I don't focus on North Africa, I can't think of a sing single person uh, that took that position who wasn't up to the job and more than up to the job. I mean, you, your predecessors, your successors have, have all strengthened that critical relationship in uh, the, the Northwest corner of Africa, which it's strategically important. Um, ambassador to Japan, ambassador to the Court of St. James, um, you know, very, very good people out there. Uh, certainly, uh, 
having the capacities to talk about what works and what doesn't and how we can systematize this in a better way than we're doing right now. Uh, so that, that would be my first point. Second point, uh, and it shouldn't even need saying, and I, certainly not to anyone in this audience, uh, trust your career people, uh, 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 particularly your deputy chief of mission. Uh, you know, they actually are not there to bring you down. Uh, uh, they're there to make policies work. And, and uh, to that process, I think, bring extraordinary abilities and talents, talents uh, and experience. So uh, it's not that you have to prove yourself, uh, um, but it does help if you walk through that door the first time, call for a town meeting and say the obvious, that uh, uh, you're only gonna be as successful on your mission um, as the staff of the mission uh, 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 can make you, that uh, uh, you're, you're gonna be accessible, you're gonna be listening, uh, you are gonna draw on these talents, uh, which is some, exactly what you did. And uh, it worked pretty darn well. Let's just see if we can do it on now on a larger scale. Paul, uh, can, I, can I just um, go to the next step on this issue of trust because it's such an important concept, uh, if you don't mind. Um, look, I think the most important thing for any ambassador, especially political appointees, is to build trust and confidence. Not only does good diplomacy start with building that trust and confidence of your interlocutors in the host country, but you know, I think just as importantly, building the trust and the confidence with your embassy staff, both the FSOs and the foreign nationals, and especially the State Department are important. There are other stakeholders like Congress, think tanks, civil society, political leaders, you know, the list goes on. But those three, to me, um, you've gotta, you really have to build and balance on those three. You know, we're pretty much guilty until proven innocent. Uh, by a number of these stakeholders, the, the political ambassadors. And there's a skill that you have to develop. I think Ryan would agree with this. Avoiding that terrible C word at state, a clientitis, uh, which uh, I always worried about, but also finding that fine line to develop the trust with the host government. You know, that balance is so important. So if you lose, and if you, don't, and if you don't listen and learn from the FSOs and find the added value between you, um, you're, you're destined to have a huge hurdle in front of you to be successful if those three things initially are, don't come together. All right, should we move to the Q&A now? We can do that. Um, let me uh, let me just uh, pull up my notes. I have a little thing I have to read here. Yes. Uh, so um, we we are ready, and thank you uh, both of you uh, for such a marvelous um, uh, discussion. I mean, I've learned a lot in the last half an hour, and I hope this is the first of more of this to come. I also think that uh, we've come up with an idea for the council to undertake perhaps um, a study for the next administration, whoever they are, um, uh, to uh, perhaps pursue this career, non-career question. So um, 
to our uh, audience, um, and I should, uh, I just want to do a, a shout out to um, two people that uh, I served with. One was my boss, Ron Newman, uh, who really uh, was helpful to me. And of course, when I was in Morocco, Robin Rafel was uh, next door. So we had a lot of work together. On your screen, as you scroll over it, you'll see a double bubble, like with a Q&A marked over it. If you click on it, you'll be able to write uh, a question. And if you'd like, you can also identify yourself. So I'm going to jump to the um, Q&A and see uh, what we have here. Please hold on. So we only have three to begin with. Um, so um, let's see. The first one, Ambassador Crocker, thank you for your service and your close cooperation with me when you were ambassador in Pakistan and I was USA point person on ADB and other matters. I'm quite concerned about the role that ambassadors must handle and undertake. As I continue to travel, I see increasing disappointment and respect on the part of our foreign associates and disbelief in USA commitments. How is it that changing the role and difficulties for the ambassador now and going forward post the current administration? Um, that's to you, Ambassador. We don't know who, this is from, sorry, it's from Paul uh, Speltz, sorry. Hey, Paul, uh, nice to almost see you. Uh, uh, so it, it is a problem, but maybe at least in my perception, not quite the way you framed it. Again, it's a big enough problem. You can frame it a lot of different ways. Here's the thing I worry about in particular. Um, uh, so we kind of don't do treaties anymore um, with foreign countries because you really can't get them through the Senate in uh, at least the normal lifespan of the people who negotiated it. Uh, so increasingly, to advance our uh, foreign policy agenda, we have uh, resorted to executive orders. Um, all you need is the president's signature and it's in effect. So I, I did two major negotiations in Iraq and then in Afghanistan for a, um, a broad-based uh, relationship that included security, but everything else under the sun too. Um, you know, educational exchanges, everything. Uh, in both cases, those uh, agreements had to be presented to the parliaments uh, in Iraq and in Afghanistan, because that's their system. Uh, uh, we did not take our agreement to the Congress. Uh, uh, lots of consultations, but they were um, signed by the president. Um, president Bush, uh, of course, in when I was in Iraq, President Obama in Afghanistan. In both countries, the chief of state said, uh, well, when we get ours through, it's got the seal of approval. The whole country's bought into it through their elected representatives. Solid support, we're good to go. You don't do it that way. President just signs, right? And what the president signs, um, another president can unsign, right? I would say in both capitals and did say, Technically, that's true, but it's never happened. Well, now it's happened. And as we go through our increasingly rancorous uh, political debates, 
I, I think we're setting up a climate in which um, it may become not just for this administration, but for successor administrations, maybe the first thing you do, uh, you know, go through your predecessors, uh, executive orders, find the ones where you can make a clear statement of repudiation uh, and, and do it. Uh, it's going to cripple us in trying to get uh, uh, necessary agreements overseas, including on things like um, jurisdiction and immunities, by the way. Uh, so I don't know quite how we're going to dig out of that hole. Uh, I, again, I think it's the kind of thing where the best and the brightest of uh, the Council of American Ambassadors and the American Academy of Diplomacy should come together to talk about this because uh, it goes way beyond, uh, I think, what Paul was talking about, the, um, uh, the, the shifts in policy directions that uh, we're experiencing. That's part of the fabric. But when you get at something fundamental like this, um, it's, it's really dangerous, and we're, we're going to pay for that, uh, I'm, I'm afraid, for a very long time. I just add to that um, that all of us, career, non-career, uh, we have got to be conscious um, of how our system works. Uh, in, unless you're going to do a treaty, uh, you, you really cannot uh, take a major policy and say, this is going to transcend a change of administrations. Um, uh, and I can guarantee it. Well, you can't. I mean, our system, it, you've got max eight years of commitment from a single leader. And let's face it, the first year they're ramping up and the last year or so they're ramping down. Uh, so it's, you know, kind of like six years or so. That's the outside limit. And we have to understand it and we have to be able to explain it. That, uh, you know, we, you know, a president cannot commit a successor to anything, uh, you know, and in some of the countries I've served in, they don't, they're not bothered by those little problems because um, the, the president is the president. He did not exactly get there on the ballot box and he can do any damn thing he wants and he can say, and I'll keep doing it as long as I'm alive. Um, well, we don't have the president for life type thing, uh, but it's an important civics lesson lesson in how we work that we need to understand and then need to be able to communicate that as appropriate. Next, uh, thank you. Uh, next uh, question is from Tezzy Schaefer. It's good to see you, Ryan. Big question, how do you think U.S. diplomacy needs to change? Both as a result of the conflict you've been involved in, I guess a checklist of what you see now and as a result of the uh, coronavirus. Hi, Daisy. Um, you know, I knew we could count on you for the big impossible to answer sorts of questions. Um, and that would be, that would be one of them. Um, I, you know, I, I do think we've got to be um, more expeditionary, frankly. Um, you know, accepting it as a term of service that you will go to very hard places and you will do very hard things. And, uh, uh, it'd be really nice if you didn't have to be drug kicking and screaming there to do those important things. Uh, that I, I think that this is clearly changing. I, I see it in the younger uh, generations of foreign service officers, the post 9-11 uh, uh, generations who sign up, uh, not so they can have a, a great assignment uh, somewhere in Western Europe where the spouse and kids get to come along for a 
truly fabulous uh, uh, family experience that uh, we're going to have more more Baghdads than we have Berlins. Uh, and we kind of adjust to that. Uh, uh, and, and Paul, there are, you know, a lot of things you've covered in that, that excellent book. Uh, uh, that may be your, your most important gift to the American people. Uh, to, to talk about the necessity for this kind of non-conventional diplomatic work uh, uh, and, and why it is so crucial. Uh, I, I would hope that uh, younger readers of that book are gonna say, that's what I wanna do. I wanna go to those hard places. I, I wanna do hard things for my country. Because uh, uh, that's, that's really the essence of, uh, of diplomacy, I think, in the modern era. Uh, Again, we can complain about um, over-militarization. Uh, we don't chose the instruments of policy. Um, whatever instrument is chosen, we do our level best to see that uh, it works for the implementation um, of the policies the president has set out and that Congress has resourced. Uh, but I, I do think we gotta be more expeditionary on it. We've got to, uh, we need to get to the point where the norm is hard places and hard things. Uh, that, that's what draws people into the service. And that's what keeps them there. That our best and brightest uh, need to be not only capable of uh, functioning without uh, hot and cold running water um, um, and not bitch too much while they're doing it. <laughs> uh, well, you hit uh, on the right point, uh, Ryan. The next uh, question from Kevin O'Malley, uh, U.S. Ambassador to Ireland from 14 to 17, um, says, this is not a question but a comment. I truly enjoyed your book, Mr. Richter, and believe that it helped us learn more about the key role played by talented and brave career diplomats. We should call out Anne as well, who's in this audience. Uh, thank you. The diplomats you described in your book are simply stated America's heroes who make us safer. And I must say, after having read the book, uh, it's a fascinating book and one that all of us uh, that care about international affairs should read. It was a real contribution. Well, let me just tell you, surprisingly, um, either we have a bunch of people on this call that don't know how to use Zoom, or your uh, conversation was so thorough and exciting, they don't have any other questions to ask. So let me just uh, end our, uh, our session uh, on time, actually. Um, I can hear the applause now. Uh, and I have to say in closing, I, I wanna thank the Council of American Ambassadors. I think we found some work to do together with our other guests here today. And thank you for hosting the event and especially uh, Ambassador Ryan Crocker, who's been one of my heroes since uh, he served in Syria and I was in Morocco. And I had, and I had the opportunity of reading his very interesting uh, cables, as well as Mr. Richter for sti this stimulating discussion. You'll be able to find a recording of today's events on the council website and on its Facebook page, American Ambassadors Live. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you all for tuning in, and we'll uh, see you soon. Stay safe. Thank you very much.
I'm not, I, I don't think I turn this off, but <laughs> somebody's going to turn it off for us. I can actually do it. I'm going to 